semester. So, um, yeah, we're, we're, this semester is quickly wrapping up. And I know that if you're anything like me, you're excited. I'm excited. This is one for the books. And I'll be glad when it's done. Um, so welcome, welcome back to Large Group. It's good to be with you. Yes, my mask does have snowman, and it is yes indeed the most comfy mask I've ever worn. I feel like Olaf. You know, I love like I love warm hugs, but it's for my face. You guys are killer. All right. Um, anyways, it's great to be with you. I want to plug summer retreat one more time. If you've ever gone to summer conference or to Westco or anything like that, this is. Uh, the as close as we can returning to that as, as we can for 2021. We haven't, done a, we haven't done a retreat or a conference in a long time and I miss it, I know you all miss it. Um, so summer retreat is such, a, it's a great opportunity, it's gonna be a lot of fun. We only have to drive, like all the other schools are driving like at least six hours and we only have to drive two because the rest of them are suckers. So um, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's an opportunity. That I think that this camp has like a thousand foot zip line and paintball um, and all the kinds of fun stuff like that. But also we have a really great speaker coming from Albuquerque. He's amazing. Uh, and then a couple other RUFs. So it's going to be a really, really sweet time. I really encourage you to sign up. Um, start working on getting time off from work. Uh, so that you can go and again like Jess said don't let money be why you don't go we have scholarships available we have people who love RUF at New Mexico State they love you even though they've never met you and they give money so that you can go so if money is a problem come talk to me talk to Madeline we will get you there um, so uh, get there be there it's going to be a lot of fun deadline for that is May 10 so you have some time to think about it but don't sleep on it um, so, all right, so we are continuing our study of the book of Acts. We've been working through this book all semester, and we've been talking about how does the Christian message, most, and more particularly, how does God himself, the Holy Spirit, work through the Christian community and the Christian message in the midst of what often seems like overwhelming odds, and that God is able to work in the midst of overwhelming odds for the good of his people and for the good of his church. And so we are going to continue looking at that tonight. And uh, tonight we are going to look at an amazingly important piece of scripture, maybe the most theologically and uh, culturally important chapter in the book of Acts tonight. It's really amazing. There's a lot of drama in this text if you step into it and what's going on with these people. And I'm going to try and paint some of the drama for that. Um, but behind some of the, the intrigue and behind some of the uh, the personalities at play, there's also super fundamental questions at the core of human hearts, of what I think is true of your and my heart, but also of our society, of college in 2021, of life in New Mexico, of life in, on Earth. Um, and that is that we tend to create and curate, we tend to create and curate attempts at self-justification apart from Jesus. And I'll dig into what that means as we go along, but tonight we see that we wrongly tend to create and curate attempts at self-justification apart from Jesus. And what this text shows us tonight is that the key to peace in your life, not a key, but the key to peace in your life, in your mind, in your heart, in your body, is to return hourly, daily, weekly to this good and sweet news of justification in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at that in three ways tonight. We're going to look at the problem in Antioch, the problem in Las Cruces, 
and the problem in Jeru- and the solution in Jerusalem. The problem in Antioch, the problem in Las Cruces, and the solution in Jus- Jerusalem. So with that, uh, if you've got a, a bulletin or a Bible, um, I'll read this text and we will dig into it. Uh, and, and this is God's word. It says, and they, and this is, uh, I'll, I'll explain this a bit, but it's a group of missionaries, of Christian missionaries. They sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate among them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing the yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor they will be able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thanks that we are gathered tonight on a breezy but also cool, warm evening, and uh, that we can sing about how only in Jesus, solo in Jesus, we are reconciled to you and reconciled to each other. Lord, as we look at that now from your word, I pray that your spirit would work through and in each of us, that we would be changed in small ways to know you as our king, our savior, and our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at this in three ways. Like I said, first, the problem in Antioch, the problem in Las Cruces, and the solution in Jerusalem. So let's start off by looking at the problem in Antioch, right? So some background. Background to what to bring us all up to speed. Um, Last week we studied how Saul, who uh, had been a a, a huge persecutor of the Christian movement, um, becomes a Christian. How he's converted to become a Christian. And when Saul becomes a Christian, he goes absolutely crazy and starts going on all these evangelism and missions trips to tell everyone around him about who Jesus is. And, uh, and, to, and to try and make, you know, bring other people to know him as their savior. And so he's going all around the Mediterranean. He's going literally, uh, people estimate like he travels somewhere between 10 and 20,000 miles over his lifetime, which was not the same as jumping in a car on a plane, right? He's traveling all around. And, uh, and he's starting to encounter some success, right? People are starting to become Christians. And they're not the typical people who have been Christians up to this point. They're not Jews. They're what we call Gentiles or or non-ethnic Jews. 
And, uh, and so, you know, the, the, the things are starting to heat up. These non-Jews are converting to Christianity. And so uh, you see here at the beginning of our text here, uh, verse 26 of chapter 14, they arrive in Antioch. They arrive in Antioch. And Antioch still exists today. Uh, it's in modern-day Syria. And uh, th- th- there's these people gathering, and, and exciting things are happening. They're arriving, and they're gathering in church together. They're saying, hey, this is what God has done. And Gentiles are, uh, are, are becoming Christians. And so, uh, but then all of a sudden, uh, you know, drama starts to happen, right? And you see that happening in, in chapter one, uh, 15, verse 1, right? A new group comes to Antioch, men from Judea. Now, men from Ojedia, we know these are probably Jews, right? These are, these are people who are um, theologically and traditionally quite conservative. Uh, and so they're coming in to challenge the theological and ethical um, beliefs of these new Christians, right? The convictions. And they're saying, well, Christianity is pretty much a splinter off of, a splinter religion out of Judaism, and you say that you're worshiping the God of the, Old Bi- of the Old Testament. You're worshiping the God of the Jewish people. And if you're going to do that, that's our religion. And we're God's people. And if you're going to do that, um, you're welcome to do that, but you need to follow the rules. Uh, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow some of the other laws. And, and what they're doing is they, um, they are beginning to re- kind of show their hand um, about who they are and what they value. And Jews at this time uh, had three main things that I'll call they had as identity hangers. These were the things that they hang their hat on and say, this is who we are as Jewish people, right? And uh, the, these three things that they did, they, it was circumcision, the food laws, you know, like Jews wouldn't eat pork, among other things. And third is observing the Sabbath. These are the things that they said, hey, this is what makes us Jews, and if you're going to be one of us, and if also you're going to be a part of our, 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 our larger movement, the Christian one, we expect you to be, you know, to do these things and to submit to these things, including circumcision. And, and, and more than that, they'd also gotten these things, these, these identity hangers from the Old Testament. They read the Old Testament and they say, hey, God told us to do these things. These were the means for obeying God. And, and Jesus himself seems to uphold them. Uh, and so, um, you know, they, they have these identity hangers. And, and as I think about that, I'm like, you know what? You and I are probably not that far from that. We tend to have similar identity hangers that we create that says, hey, this is who I am. And we tend to be fairly public about those a lot of the time, right? Like each one of us does this. We say, this thing is what makes me, you know, like who I am. It makes me me. Um, like for me, Y'all know what I'm going to say. Like, what is the thing that when you think about Jonathan, well, it's bikes, right? I talk about cycling all the time because I love riding bikes. It's an identity hanger. If you talk to Jonathan for more than a couple of minutes, I'm going to bring up bikes, right? Um, or, or other things like, um, like, you know, I take a lot of probably unhealthy pride in my books, how much I've read. These are identity hangers that I have, that, that, that I say this is what makes me who I am. So, and you do the same thing, the way you dress, what you're studying, maybe it's your race, maybe, and, and look, I don't, these aren't bad things. They're not bad things to say, these are, these are the things that make me who I am. They're good things, and they're also significant parts of our identity that we hang, that say, this is what makes me me. 
but they can become a bad thing, right? They can become a bad thing. So here's the wrinkle. Here's the problem. These Gentiles, these new Christians, they don't follow these things, especially the circumcision one for various cultural reasons that I won't get into. Um, oh, by the way, if you have questions as I'm talking, if you want me to answer that or other ones, shoot me a text. My phone number is on your paper, and we'll interact with those questions afterwards. Um, so the, the, these new Christians don't follow these. And so these Jewish, uh, we'll call them Judaizers, come in, and they say, they come to Antioch, and they say, like, hey, we're glad you want to be with us, but to do this, you need to, you need to add circumcision. But they went farther than that, right? Look at, verse, look at verse 1. He says, unless you are circumcised... According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're upping the ante. They're saying it is necessary for you to follow these rules, for you to do these things so that you can be saved. They're saying your salvation, new Christian, hinges upon, depends on whether or not you are going to follow these rules, right? And verse 5, it says the same thing. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. They're upping the ante and saying, hey, these identity hangers, these are the things that are necessary for someone to be a Christian. They were adding circumcision. They were adding the works of the law to what it means to be a Christian. Now... This makes Paul lose his mind. He goes ballistic. And in verse 2 of chapter 15, we start to see a little bit of this. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. The Greek there, the original language there, is they fought long and hard about this. This was not an academic discussion. They got mad at each other. They went to town arguing about this, right? Because Paul sees behind this what we would perceive as like, Circumcision seems kind of weird to pick your fight over. But Paul sees behind that an attack at the theological core of Christianity, right? Why? Because, because literally the whole faith, the whole fate of human salvation hinges on this question and the implications and ramifications for it. We look at this and we say, what is up with circumcision? This is so weird that this is where they want to fight. But listen to what Paul is understanding here. He says, this is important. He says, behind this very strange and dated cultural question for us is a theological question that spans all times and places, and it's this. Has Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, done everything necessary for salvation? Or do you and I have to do something else? Or, another way to put it, is are we saved partly through the grace of Christ and partly through our own good works and our religious performance? Are we justified? That's another way of saying, are we accepted by God by faith alone or a mixture of faith and works, grace and law, Jesus and Moses? And you see, the Judaizers, what they were doing is they were coming in and they were saying, hey, you need to add something of your own into this. You need to add something of your own into this. They said, God will love you if you trust Jesus and if you do the works of the law here. And friends, that is a huge problem. That is an attack at the core, the foundation of the Christian message. Everything hinges on that. And so, so what's the Antioch problem here? What's the problem going on in Antioch? Well, the Antioch problem is whether or not these Gentile converts have to submit 
to the Jewish law. But underneath that, beneath that, is a fundamental question about how are human beings made loved and accepted and valued by the God of the Bible. That's the Antioch problem. And so that brings us to the Las Cruces problem. Let me try and tie that to where we are right now sitting on a grassy field in New Mexico. All right? The Antioch problem is bigger than just Jew-Gentile relations. It actually speaks to something that every single human being encounters, right? And what can seem like a sort of niche and antiquated debate is actually super powerful to your heart and to my heart, right? We're not as far from the Judaizers as we think. Remember how I said they have their identity hangers and we have ours? For the things that make us unique, important, valued. For them, it was circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath. But behind those was a deep human need to be loved and to be accepted by others, and most importantly, to be loved and accepted by God. And I would argue that behind our identity hangers is that same desperate desire, is for someone, maybe your parents, maybe a boyfriend, a girlfriend, maybe your professor, but I would argue most fundamentally, the person whose love we are most desperately looking for, the person whose acceptance we are most needing, God. Behind all of our identity hangers is an attempt to get God's love. The Judaizers did it with this. God will save me because we trust in Jesus and we're circumcised. But we do it too, especially in college. College is such a moment of trying to ask the question of who am I? Who am I? And so we are desperately putting up these identity hangers. And behind all of that, we are desperately making statements of or questions of what makes me valuable? What makes me loved? What makes me accepted? Is it my academics? Is it my relationships? Is it my job? Is it my social media presence? Is it the fact that I don't care? Or at least I seem like I don't care. The Judaizers are asking a question of value and identity, and and we do the same thing. How do we do that? Well, we create and curate our identities. The clothes we wear. I don't care who you are. You put on clothes to project something about yourself so that someone will notice. Even the person who's just like, ah, I just throw on a jeans and t-shirt. No, you're trying to impress the people who just throw on jeans and t-shirts. All the way up to these, you know, the, the, the influencers on Instagram who spend so much time on their looks. All of us are doing that. Our social media choices, like TikTok versus Instagram versus the person who says, oh, I don't use, I don't use any social media. You're still making identity hanger there. It's not a bad thing, but it can, you know, it, it can be. The degree that we perceive ourselves as valuable in our intelligence, in our athletics, in our ability, to, you know, if we're going to the gym, how we play on the soccer field, we are all so, so skillful at literally turning anything as a means to perform and therefore earn each other, but most importantly, God's approval to self-justify and say, hey, I, I, there's a, I, I deserve to take up the oxygen that I'm breathing. I deserve to be a person. I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of someone saying, hey, I'm glad you're in this room. I'm glad you're here tonight because, because of this thing that I do, because of this area that I performed. We all do it. I do it. I'm probably the worst at all of us at this. I, I'm desperately trying to get college students to like me. 
That's what I, and so I do all kinds of things to get you to like me. The Judaizer problem is not just a Jewish problem, it's a human problem. So how do you discern where you're doing this in your, in your life? Well, look back at verse, at verse 1 and ask yourself, what would you replace circumcision with? What word would you... It says, try this on. Unless, verse, verse 1 says, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. What about this one? Unless you get 150 likes on Instagram, you cannot be loved. Unless you earn over $100,000 a year after college, you cannot be valuable. Unless you find the perfect spouse, you cannot be sexy. Unless you look at, at like your favorite influencer, you cannot be marketable. Unless you get a 3.9 or above GPA, you cannot be intelligent. Y'all, we all do this in smaller or greater ways. What is the thing for you, the identity hanger, that you have blown up as a means to evaluate and justify yourself? to justify the oxygen you take up. Here's this, we all have them. And if you don't, you're just not looking at yourself very well. You're lying to yourself, frankly. The Judaizers were not the only ones who were doing the works of the law to try and earn others, but most importantly, God's approval. Non-religious people do this. Religious people do this. Minority people do this. Powerful people do this. Rich people do this. Poor people do this. We all do this. And so when we do this, we're denying the sufficiency of faith alone, which as the means to being saved or to be valued by God. And we're becoming the Judaizers. We're becoming people who are judgmental and exclusive. We're saying, you cannot be with us. You, unless you do this thing, you cannot be with us. That's what they're saying. It is necessary, verse 5, to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Unless you become like us, the Judaizers say, you can't be saved. And we do the same thing unless you get woke enough or unless you vote red enough. Unless you are smart, unless you're white, unless you're black or brown, unless you're rich, unless you're dressed like me. We end up, and so these identity hangers become things that we use to weaponize and exclude other people, which is what the Jews are doing, what we do. So, and essentially what we're doing, we're doing two things, honestly. We're putting, our place in this, we're putting ourselves in the place of God, and we're saying, I get to be the one who decides who's in and who's out. And second of all, we're saying that trusting in Jesus alone is not enough, but somebody's got to earn it. I earned it, or I'm trying to earn it, and you need to, too. You need to well as well earn it. So what I'm trying to say here is that the Antioch problem is not just a question about circumcision. It's a problem that cuts to the core of humanity, and that you and I are in the same place. The Las Cruces problem is the Antioch problem, right? So where does the gospel, where does the good news of Jesus Christ encounter all of this? This need that we have, all right? So let's look at the Jerusalem solution. The Jerusalem solution. Well, let's go back to the text and see what goes on here. So verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the, some of the others who were appointed to go up, uh, and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders with this question. So being sent on their way, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, dis describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders 
Some of the Pharisees came in. And then look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. And after much debate, Peter stood up and said to them. So what happens here? Well, they gather together. All the, all, the, all the parties here, the group gets together. All the parties, you see the Pharisees, the Judaizers are here, Paul and Barnabas on one side. Everybody gets together and they come to Jerusalem and they say, hey, we've got to hash this out. We've got to figure out what we think about this theologically and, 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 all, and all this. And so they get together and they have, what does they say? Is they have a debate about it in verse 6 and 7, right? And so I'm just going to put a quick segue in here and say that um, this still happens a lot. Churches still get together and say, hey, there's a really pressing need theologically and ethically. We need to get together and talk about it. Uh, the, the churches often have disagreements about faith and practice, and they get together. And most of the big statements in Christian faith, statements like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, or the Westminster Confession that we've been studying in RUF, most of those came out of really intense times of disagreement and need for theological clarity and need for questions about this. And so that's what happens here. They, they, they come together to answer these questions. And so let's look and see what their solution is. And their solution comes in Peter's uh, speech that he gives, verse 7. Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between them, us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, there's lots of things that to, to study in this, but I want to bring out three things that Peter is saying here. First, first thing I want to see is, us to see is that God initiates our salvation. God initiates our salvation. Look at verse 7. God made a choice among you. And this is so important because this is saying, Peter is saying from the very get-go, God is the one who moves towards you and me in his saving work and his saving power. It's not that you start the process or that God starts it and you finish it. God saves us. And there's no amount of work or performance on our end, ethically, identity hanger-wise, circumcision or whatever, that will, that will complete or even start our salvation. Humans do not earn or prove or keep God's grace by their own effort. It's completely God's free choice. Just like, think about an adopted child, right? An adopted child doesn't get to choose their parents. The parents do all the work. The parents decide, hey, we're going to adopt a kid. Then they go through the adoption process. They pay for the legal fees. They, and all of a sudden, this kid just shows up, and it's like, well, I guess I'm your kid now. The parents do all the work. And that's how God works in our salvation. He does all the initiation. Second thing I want you to notice here is that the Gentiles were cleansed by faith. Verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And notice what he's saying here. He says, A, they're already in. They've been cleansed. And what does he say? What's been the mechanism of their being cleansed? Is it that they were cleansed by faith and, oh, by the way, they kept the Mosaic law? And he says, no, they were cleansed by faith, by trusting in what God has done, and that's by, by trusting in who Jesus is. That's what saves them. That's what purifies them, is, is, is trusting or faith in Christ. 
that salvation in God or by God hinges only in the purification of sin by the means of trusting in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only thing. And no one, not one bit of it, by obeying the Jewish laws. Lastly, look at, look at, look at number, uh, verse 11, number 3, that it's all by the grace of Jesus that these Gentiles are saved. Verse 11. Look at the text. It says, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of Jesus just as they will. A lot of y'all have been studying uh, Galatians in your small groups, in your quattros, and Galatians talks about this, actually this very, not just a piece of this, this very story. And, and Paul is writing to the Galatian church and he actually talks about this Jerusalem council. And Paul is absolutely furious at anyone who would dare to say like, hey, you need to add this to being a Christian to be saved. And listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 2. Galatians 2.16, he says, we know that a man is, or a woman, a man or woman is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Look how similar that is to verse 11. Paul says, we know that a man is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Peter says, and we believe that we will be saved through the grace or the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Peter here is equating, he's making equal the salvation of the Jews, the we, and the salvation of the Gentiles, the, day, the they. And he's saying that grace, God's free gift in Jesus, is the solution for everyone. But no one has a leg up. And that's why Paul later on here will say that there is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but that we're all one because of Jesus, because of faith in Jesus. And there's this central theme that Peter and Paul agree on here, and it's this, that belief in Jesus, trusting in the free gift of what he has done, and only in what he has done, is what saves and justifies and accepts us and loves us by God. And nothing that we do, none of the identity hangers that we create and curate and then use to assess ourselves and, thus, and assess others matter. None of that is what makes us valued, loved, accepted, cherished. That is why Paul says in Galatians later on, he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. All of the apostles are gathering here in Jerusalem to affirm that it is by trusting in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was God and man who came and died for you and for me in our place and then came back to life for you and for me. And that by trusting in him, we live in him. And there's nothing that we do than just trust. That's the Jerusalem solution, but the Jerusalem solution goes even deeper than that. The truest Jerusalem solution is that a few years earlier, Jesus Christ did die outside the town. Jesus Christ not only gave up his identity hangers, but he gave up his whole identity so that you could have his identity of the son or the daughter of God. Jesus Christ gave up everything that he was. In fact, he was mocked, shamed, killed, destroyed, so that you can be loved, welcomed, cherished, and accepted by none other than the most caring person in the whole world, God himself. 
the truest Jerusalem solution is both the Antioch problem and the Las Cruces problem is that Jesus Christ takes my sin and my shame, your sin and your shame, onto himself and gives you his perfection, gives you his love, gives you his grace. And that becomes your identity hanger. That becomes the thing that says I'm loved and valued because of Jesus. That's the gospel of grace, y'all, that Jesus' perfection becomes your perfection, that Jesus' identity hanger becomes your identity hanger, a daughter or a son of the living God. Now, how does this apply to you and me? Stick with me and I'll be done. This is quick. A few major ways. First, dig into your own life for the places of the works of the law. Where is the circumcision? Where is the Antioch? Where is the Las Cruces problem in your life, active in your life? They're there. If you can't see it, ask your friends, because I promise they can see it. Where are the places that you find yourself judging others? Where are the places where you say, if this was taken away, I would be worthless? Where are the places where you find yourself judging yourself? Is it in college? Is it, is it, I'll, I'll, bet, I'll bet this. I'll bet there's in the, 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 that one of these is, is active in you. Grades, romance, family approval, friends, or how well you look as a Christian. I bet that's true for one of you. For, one of those is true for you. Grades, romance, family or parents approval, friends, and how good of a Christian you look. Where is the identity hanger that you're looking for works of the law? And in, when you found that, return again to the grace of the Jerusalem solution, that Jesus Christ loves you so much that he gives you the perfect identity hanger as a daughter or a son of him. And the only way you get it is by trusting in what he has done for you. Let me pray for us. Lord in heaven, thanks for your grace and your goodness. Thanks for the way that you love us so much that you give us your identity. I pray that that would become new and sweet to each of us in a transforming and empowering way. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.